are listening to PPEs, Practice, Politics, Education, and Solidarity. This is a podcast series curated by the Critical Filipina Filipino Studies Collective to highlight and uplift action and scholarship that is anti-imperialist, committed to movement building about the Philippines and the Filipino diaspora. This podcast is named PPE in honor of all the Filipinos, Filipinas working on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic all over the world and their continuing fight to work safely and with dignity. On this episode, we talk with Dr. Aiko Day, an Associate Professor of English and Critical Social Thought at Mount Holyoke College and faculty member in the Five College Asian Pacific American Studies program. Her research focuses on Asian North American literature and visual culture, settler colonialism and racial capitalism, Marxist theory and queer of color critique, She's the author of Alien Capital, Asian Racialization, and the Logic of Settler Colonial Capitalism out of Duke University Press in 2016. Your hosts are Dr. Mike Viola, Associate Professor at St. Mary's College of California in the Justice, Community, and Leadership Program and Affiliate Faculty in Ethnic Studies, and me, Dr. Valerie Francisco Menchavez, Associate Professor in Sociology and Sexuality Studies at San Francisco State University. Awesome. I have we have with us Dr. Aiko Day. She is the Leslie Center William H. Morton Distinguished Senior Fellow at Dartmouth College, Associate Professor of English and Critical Social Thought at Mount Holyoke College. Um, brilliant intellectual and scholar. Her most recent book uh, is Alien Capital, Asian Racialization and the Logic of Settler Colonial Capitalism. Uh, she wrote a dope piece um, that came out in monthly review um, on thinking um, around romantic anti-capitalism in the Yellow Plague. And so just to begin, um, Aiko, we just wanted to touch base with you in the sense of like, how have things been going with you in the past year um, um, in terms of kind of maintaining and persevering through this global pandemic? Wow. Um... Well, I'm still here and I think that it's been, you know, so uh, such a paradigm shift this past year. On one hand, I think that it's really clarified a lot of things for a lot of people, like what's important in life, what's important to sustain life, um, the power that people have to organize with one another. I mean, we've seen so much violence, um, I think, that also reveals a lot about the kind of um, society that we live in. Um, at the same time, we've also seen the power of, of organizing um, and the, 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 just the impact that it has had on just our own ability to even imagine a world without police, without prisons, you know, hopefully we could extend that to a world without our 800, uh, you know, military bases around the world. So, I mean, I think that I would have never predicted that we would be in 2021 talking about defunding or even, you know, um, abolishing the police. So I think that as much, um, you know, hopelessness that has, and, and just, um, uh, the, 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 the experiences of, you know, illness, poverty, homelessness, um, 
you know, as, as terrible as those things have become and have become much more aggravated, particularly in black and brown communities. We've also seen a tremendous amount of imagination come kind of to fruition. So I think that there's, um, so I, I, I'm balancing those two things and kind of just watching it unfold. And, uh, and it's both terrifying and, and exciting at the same time. Michael, what are you doing right now in terms of just on a personal um, to, to be hopeful, you know, maintaining a, a sense of joy, uh, a sense that um, of hope that tomorrow is going to be better in terms of like what on a personal or kind of like, or even on a political, like what, what are you finding yourself in terms of just kind of maintaining yourself and finding joy in this, in this world right now that we're, that we're, that we're in? Uh, great questions. I mean, I think that just sort of personally, um, uh, I think I personally am keeping uh, streaming services alive in business. <laughs> so, um, I've probably seen every kind of mystery and every Shonda Rhimes, you know, uh, television show. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's shout out, shout out to Shonda Land. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's okay though, because there are 17 or 18 seasons of Grey's Anatomy. So uh, it'll keep me busy for a while. Um, I have a daughter, so, you know, We've been cooking a lot and, and, and um, as much as we can, there have, and I live in, a, in Northampton, which is a small city in Western Massachusetts. And there has been, you know, activism, just, I live close to downtown. So we've participated as much as we can and um, support. Um, so that's sort of generally, um, you know, we've tried to see people, you know, outside as much as we can. Um, and I'm just so, thankful that it's, it feels like we're finally turning the corner. I have one more dose of vaccine coming, you know, this, I think tomorrow actually. And so I feel like I'll act, we'll actually be able to see people in the flesh. So I'm, I'm really happy about that. But at the same time, I've been really pleased with the way that Zoom has worked to connect people, maybe more people. It's sort of been also this kind of democratizing force. So I, I'm, I'm not unhappy that we had to sort of, um, you know, this had happened for us to all kind of uh, be connected this way as well. I'm so happy to be in conversation with you, Aiko. And a question that I always have meeting and reading scholars um, and activists is, you know, really about how your background, how your life story has informed like your scholarship or how you do your scholarship or how you come to think about the world. Could you tell us a little bit about um, your experiences? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, everything I write or everything that I'm thinking about probably has, you know, a personal, you know, it has a, it's a, it's kind of a part of my own kind of autobiography perhaps. And I think that um, for me, especially thinking about settler colonialism and race together, which when I was in graduate school was not something that anybody was interested in at all. Um, everything was sort of like you're native or you're white and it was very binary. Um, people didn't, even when we think about ethnic studies, everything was also like Asian Americans and white supremacy, black people and white supremacy, everything was sort of against this, um, you know, white domination and ne never really you know, uh, thinking across and relate in relation to one another. So for me, um, because I grew up in Canada, uh, in British Columbia, I grew up really impacted by First Nations um, 
you know, struggles over land claims, over um, resources, um, you know, that, and, and I would have to say that unlike the United States, although it's changing somewhat, I mean, that was like in the news every day. And it was always, it was, um, the blockade movement was something that was real, uh, a, a real kind of, um, it made a huge impression on me um, as I was growing up. Um, and so kind of First Nations politics, um, seemed sort of paradigmatically opposed to you know, Canada as a settler nation. And so when I moved to the United States for graduate school, I thought, you know, I felt it was really different. You know, it was like very black and white. Um, and even when I was in, in ethnic studies classes, you know, um, first or Native American studies never seemed to fit within the sort of dominant focus on race, you know, uh, transnationalism, immigration. Um, and it always kind of was at the end of the syllabus. Um, and so I thought, wow, this is really different. And also in Canada, you know, First Nations studies would never be considered ethnic at all. <laughs> so even the framework of ethnic studies seemed so, um, you know, it was just odd to me. <laughs> um, and so meanwhile, you know, in this sort of paradigm where we're thinking about how, you know, Asian Americans or people of color exist under kind of white supremacist domination. Um, you know, Asian Americans and Latinx tended to sort of be between black and white. That was the sort of framing. And so that either could be understood as, you know, Asian Americans and Latinx are kind of, they're sort of like less black or they're sort of some kind of derivative uh, racial expression of, of some kind of absolute, you know, foundational anti-blackness. And indigenous indigeneity um, never really came into the schema of thinking about, um, you know, race, migration, you know, anything. So, um, so I was like, wow, these are kind of different sort of racial formations or discourses around racial formation um, that have different, you know, that are based on distinct kind of demographic differences in Canada and the U.S. I mean, Canada is an, an incredibly anti-Black nation as well, but I was just sort of interested in how there, there's, there's nevertheless kind of a different kind of understanding of race and ethnicity. However, what is completely consistent between Canada and the US is anti-Asian racism. <laughs> like in, it almost like you couldn't even plan it. I mean, all of the anti-Asian kind of immigration policies have unfolded almost simultaneously um, in lockstep in, in Canada and the US. And, and at another point, I also looked at other settler nation, white settler nations like Australia and New Zealand. And similarly, they all kind of, all of the anti-Asian policy kind of occurs around the same time. Um, so I was like, what is it about, what is this? So how do we understand um, Asian racialization? And, and what if we can't simply rely on its association um, with anti-Blackness? What happens if we think of it in terms of its relation to Indigenous land? Um, because I always felt that, you know, Asianness as, as kind of, as an alien kind of, um, and similarly Blackness as an alien kind of um, a racial formation, it's sort of the opposite of what is Indigenous. And so I was interested in this kind of, this opposition between alien and native and thinking in terms of how settler colonialism manages that. So, um, so I wanted to sort of ask this different, uh, just approach the question of, of Asian racialization through the frame of settler colonialism rather than, um, you know, this kind of US kind of binary white black kind of system. So 
um, so that's so so I guess that's the long answer to, um, you know, how I think growing up, you know, my own experience, just anecdotally, um, thinking about how my existence was so defined by First Nations struggles, you know, led to me wanting to uh, think about Asian racialization through the lens of indigenous dispossession. Um, so that's, um, but increasingly as I'm here now, and especially during COVID, um, I've been much more interested more recently to sort of think about Asian, particularly around the ups, uptick in violence against Asian Americans, um, how we cannot lose sight of how that violence still is not exceptional and it occurs alongside the banality of anti-Blackness and, you know, Indigenous dispossession. So I always, you know, I'm, I'm very, um, I'm trying to always put, keep all of these, um, you know, these questions in play um, at all times. It's so um, refreshing to hear you kind of make sense of that, um, like out loud. I just think about holding so many nuanced ideas and realities in tension with each other. It's often, um, I feel like in graduate school, folks, I'm a sociologist by training and, and in sociology, they're always like, let's categorize things. Can we make a flow chart, you know, make it simple. And, and I think that's the problem um, that they, they don't exist in a, you know, sort of the racial triangle or, you know, so many things fall out uh, of those kinds. I mean, not to say that, some, you know, categorizing <laughs> to, and, you know, and classification doesn't have its uses, its functions. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I suppose like holding those different things in tension all the time in your thinking, in your body, in your experiences um, isn't so easy. And can you just mention where you went to grad, grad school? Um, close to probably where you are. I went to UC Berkeley's um, uh, ethnic studies pro uh, graduate program. Um, yeah. PhD and, program, yeah. Right. Um, and how is that like, I mean, you were coming into it and you're like, let me disrupt all of your things, right? Because <laughs> right? how was that experience for you where people were like, whoa, or were they welcome to sort of this kind of paradigmatic shift? Um, you know, I have so much nostalgia for graduate school. I loved my program. I'm still very close friends with most of the people that were in my cohort. I know that's not the experience of everyone in graduate school, <laughs> but I was lucky. And I think that, um, I think that, because I had been in English, I have a master's degree also in English from Dalhousie University in Canada and um, going into actually being able to engage more with social sciences like sociology. I actually took, I think, uh, some sociology classes and wondered if I should have been a sociologist. Um, I used to really be into Pierre Bourdieu and, I, and just in response to your comment, you know, I, I one of my favorite quote, quotations from him is, you know, the class, uh, classification classifies the classifier. <laughs> um, so um, anyways, uh, yeah, so I, I, I had so much to learn. Um, you know, I was just trying to soak it all in. And, um, and, I, and so I think that the way, the first way I did that actually, you know, I, I'm always trying, you know, trying to make sense of where, you know, the shift in my location from Canada to the US, because I actually did something which, you know, probably resonates a little bit with sociology is I actually compared US and Canadian censuses um, from, you know, the 18th century and the 19th century in Canada, just to sort of see the evolution of actually racial classification. Um, how did it change? And how did the kind of 
particularly the politics of indigeneity shape a different kind of racial discourse um, in Canada? And then how does, you know, and then similarly sort of looking at the black power struggle and looking at how that particularly that shaped questions around mixed racedness, um, which is very politicized here in a way, especially on the census. Um, and in census in, in 2000, you know, they added um, multiple race checking and the way that um, uh, monitoring happens in, in the US around that uses those and relies on those racial categories um, is really different than in Canada where mixed race identity is not really political at all. <laughs> um, and, and, a, and a question of like numbers and, and, and things like that. So um, so anyway, so I thought that was kind of interesting and helped me understand, oh, okay, so, you know, um, we can see how these, these shifts in discourse actually change the way, you know, they, they, they make their own world a little bit. So I, I was kind of, so that was always interesting to me. And, um, I also think that because, um, you know, I'm not from the United States, although I've been here for a really long time. I tend to always want to look outside of the United States to answer my question or to sort of pursue a question. So uh, right now I'm looking at uh, nuclear colonialism and I'm looking at it from the perspective of the Belgian Congo, um, the Northwest Territories in Canada, as well as in Asia. So I always want to have that kind of transnational um, perspective because I feel that I don't know, it just adds another layer to understanding kind of these patterns. I go, um, Val and I are, are leading a workshop on May 3rd on the rise of anti-Asian racism. Um, one of trust that we are gonna drop your, your, your the, the, the yellow plague and romantic anti-capitalism piece um, and plug that in terms of helping our participants understand um, the context, the history, of um, Asian racialization. Um, I want you to be able to speak to your research and make the connections in regards to what do you feel like, there's been so many different like statements. We put out a statement, you know, um, and one of the things that we feel like there's, things are missing. Um, yeah. What do you feel, and I feel like your work is important in, in, in offering us a, a deeper context of some of these con, um, the interrelations. And so um, could you just kind of briefly, what, what do you think is missing in terms of an, an analysis around understanding this rise? It's always been there, um, but it's like, I think we're, re we're realizing that there's uh, things are changing so rapidly right now um, with COVID, um, with, the with, with the resistance in regards to like the Black Lives Matter movement, but mm -hmm. help us to understand like, what do you think is some things that are missing in our analysis of understanding this particular moment in regards to anti-Asian racism? Uh, that's a great question. And it's, um, I think that one of the things about the pandemic has required that we really think, try to think quickly, like, and understand and analyze things as they're unfolding. And, you know, my thinking is kind of, you know, we're all evolving um, in our thinking about this. Um, and thank you so much for, um, you know, plugging the monthly review piece. It is um, war to warn your audience, uh, you know, very, I, I'm very interested in, uh, in you know, Marxist um, theory. So it, it is heavy on that. So I'll try to, you know, as I speak right now, I'll try to maybe uh, rely less on that kind of a theoretical discourse and just sort of talk about what I see happening. Um, 
So in terms of what I see as missing, I mean, I think right now, I, I just actually am finishing a piece that is called for art form, which is, an, which it will, you know, a more public facing um, uh, magazine, right, to sort of talk about Asian Americans and racial capitalism. And I've actually been really influenced recently with the work of Claire Jean Kim um, and her work on Asian Americans in an anti-Black world. And so I think that, so there's two things. I mean, I think that one of the, one of the points that we wanna emphasize is that, you know, anti-Asian racism isn't just sort of, it isn't, um, uh, uh, it's like deeply embedded in racial capitalism. It's not simply um, that this sort of bizarre, unexpected kind of idea. Um, in my you know, in my work, I kind of argue that in moments of, particularly of economic destabilization, and we can look back to the 19th century, you know, that destabilization, that particularly that economic destabilization and white male dislocation that results from that has often, you know, had an Asian face. So, you know, you can look at the 19th century and, you know, white male labor unions that had, you know, who had the campaigns of like the Chinese must go to fears that the Japanese had this sort of monopoly hold over agriculture in the 1920s and 30s that, you know, you know presaged the, uh, um, the Japanese internment um, to, you know, economic restructuring uh, that led to the decline in the US auto industry and then, you know, led to the violence against, uh, you know, a lot of anti-Japanese violence and in particular the death of uh, the murder of Vincent Chin. And now we have, you know, this huge China threat on top of a pandemic that is supposed to have the source in China. Um, and so, I kind of argue that, you know, these are moments that breed and we've seen a lot of conspiracy theories, you know, um, that have also been produced in this moment, like with QAnon, et cetera. But in these moments where there's so much, there's such a lack of um, social cohesion and just, you know, just despair. Um, uh, I argue that th these are kind of the breeding grounds of what I call romantic anti-capitalism. And this is a misreading. This is not in fact anti-capitalist, but it, what it is is it's kind of like an embrace of both nature and a kind of um, and a, and a, an embattled whiteness. Like nature and whiteness is under threat. And so uh, by protecting it, violently protecting it, um, that becomes understood as a form of, of anti-capitalism. Um, the most extreme versions of that are sort of current uh, eco-fascist movements and um, that that um, inspired the, the gunman in El Paso as well as the man in Christchurch, New England and, or sorry, not, sorry, New Zealand. Um, and both of those gunmen said that they were, uh, they, by killing immigrants, they were protecting nature, right? So, so, so for me, um, in thinking about Asian racialization, I look at the way in which Asians have often been um, sort of associated with an excessive efficiency, an excessive economism. Like, you know, they were cheap labor in the 19th and 20th centuries. And then, you know, the model minority is also kind of associated with an, an economism. And so um, I argue that in moments of crisis, that sort of becomes representative of a kind of destructive value regime. And we can add this sort of transnational element to it when thinking about how China's non-capital, whatever kind of, you know, state capitalist, socialist, um, you know, system is, it's, it's, a just, it's threatening, you know, US global hegemony. And so 
I feel like right now we're seeing this confluence of, of those kinds of issues that have that are you know based on the inequality and scar scarcity that capitalism is supposed to produce. Yet we we instead we we personify it, and we we and so I, so in many ways I see that this violence uh, against Asian Americans is in some ways um, connected to that. Uh, yeah, so I kind of lost my train of thought, but I mean, that's sort of one element just to sort of think about this in terms of the long history. Uh, and, and we can add, you know, the specific vulnerabilities of, of Asian women and their, their conflation with sex work, which is completely uh, the part of the legacy of US imperialism and military bases, two thirds of which are in Asia and the Pacific. Um, and the way that you know, military camp towns, which have some of them, which have been dismantled, have then just been sort of transplanted um, many to the U.S. South, which has the most military bases in the U.S. So, um, so that culture has kind of been transplanted here. Um, uh, so that's one part, and I think that the the second part that I could say more about is just that what I'm writing about now, more specifically, is about thinking about Asian hate. Um, through the prism of anti-blackness, um, and 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 again, as I said, this that work is kind of inspired by, or thinking with um, Claire Jean Kim, um, thinking with Dylan Rodriguez um, and other folks who are thinking about, you know, how we none of these none of these um, moments of violence or the targeted violent um, expressions of violence against Asians is exceptional at all, um, and it's important that we don't treat it as the, as such. And um, I've especially been interested in comparing actually, because if we don't nuance our understanding of how unexceptional this violence is, we end up looking to the state for hate crime and <laughs> anti-discrimination legislation. So part of my article looks at comparing um, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act compared to the recently passed, um, well, it's, it's not fully passed, uh, COVID-19 um, hate crimes act. And so, you know, basically these are forms of what my colleague, um, Renyo Huang calls, uh, carceral care. So this is, this is the sort of the simple, the simplistic response, uh, to, you know, a much more complicated system of settler colonial racial capitalism. And, and, um, you know, obviously those, those, those forms of carceral care do nothing actually to address uh, the systemic issues that have given rise to this violence. My brain just grew so much, wrinkles in it, I go, I appreciate you this morning. Um, I, I think about like um, that juxtaposition of the COVID-19 hate crimes and the George Floyd um, Act and thinking about the state right now as it is sort of being the arbiter of justice or sort of trying to bring some kind of equity um to to me as a scholar feels like oh god no <laughs> like you know but i think for some folks in asian american communities right um there's a formidable population that you know are rejecting the idea of defunding the police and you know might reject sort of what you what, what you just proposed or and, and you know the whole, whole idea I know it's not your idea um of, of carceral care um that they might want to invite that right um and I think in our work in the collective 
we want to offer, um, we want to meet people where they're at and we want to offer like a more critical way to, to do that. And I think that that often doesn't mean that we turn down the, like the decibels of our criticality, but it does mean sort of um, breaking it down a little bit more, right? Not a little bit more, just like really getting to a, like different ways of talking about these complex ideas. In your work, Aiko, how do you place the, these keywords like critical um, that's in, in, our, in our like collective name? Or even where do you position collective um, in, in your thinking? You know, in not just your thinking, maybe as an activist, as a mother, as uh, an ally, you know, um, how do you position those words? Great, great, great questions and, um, and hard ones. I mean, I think that um, especially the question, I mean, there are two questions that I kind of, that are two issues that you raise. One is like meeting people where they are, um, which is not necessarily where I am, you know, or we are as academics, you know, and, um, and how to learn to speak, you know, the language at the same time, uh, when I'm, you know, walking downtown and seeing protesters, I see that they're, they're, their analysis is deeper and, 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 you know, as critical as mine is as well. So I'm sort of, so there is like so many more uh, moments of convergence, I feel like between, you know, the, those of us who are in ethnic studies, or the, those of us who are ethnic studies scholars and, and folks that are, you know, you know, doing or in, in movement building work. Um, and I can come back to that, especially around, well, I mean, just, just maybe two points about how to meet people where they are around hate crimes. I mean, I feel like, you know, one of the um, compelling sort of comparative notes is maybe the LA uprisings and thinking about what was the, what, how did we respond to that, you know? And a lot of it was sort of through carceral care, more safety for Asian Americans, but who's, does, Asian, does more safety for Asian Americans produce more safety for, African-Americans, Latinx and indigenous folks. Like, so what is, um, what is being brokered and what, you know, so, so there's that question that has, that I think uh, we have to answer or we have to, we have to ask and we have to look at that. And as much as I, as much as um, I'm horrified by the, uh, uh, you know, the surge in anti-Asian violence, it is also true um, that Asian-Americans are the only group of color who have you know, a, a, a lower morbidity rate from COVID-19 than any other group, you know, than white people in this country. So we don't get to see that gap if we focus on the sort of the exceptional nature of this violence against Asian Americans. I feel like we need to look at that gap um, because um, as Dylan Rodriguez, you know, he argues, you know, there's it's asymmetrical kind of warfare against people of color. It's not the same. And so I feel like if we don't, nuance uh, our understanding, then we come up with these sort of non-solutions like carceral care. We have like a one, oh yeah, so more policing, uh, more anti-discrimination laws um, that will create, that will sort of somehow create safety. But my question is, will that create safety for black people, Latinx, you know, probably not. And not only that, it is not what in fact the women, like women who are in stigmatized um, industries like the massage parlors that the women worked at who were murdered, 
um, that is not, it's not what they're asking for, right? So it will not actually, it will probably enhance the vulnerability of the people that these laws and these um, bills are trying to protect. So it's completely, in, in some ways, it's sort of irrational to think that um, uh, the forms of state violence that produce this, um, uh, these, these, um, uh, this, this pervasive sense of abandonment, uh, disposability, you know, and violence, you know, that, that they would also be the same uh, source of protection and safety. So, so it, sorry, that's, so that's one thing. And then this, the second question was about critical, um, yeah, I think a lot, that's a great question. And I was, you know, I, there's so many different directions that that can go in. And I think for me, um, you know, especially as I mentioned, I, I have my PhD in ethnic studies and about, I don't know, a certain number of years later, uh, there was the first conference in critical ethnic studies. And I kind of think about what did that mean? Um, I still wonder a lot about uh, whether critical and queer are sort of synonymous with one another. Um, maybe they can be, but in general, what I think that um, the, criti the critical ethnic studies turn meant was that sort of a movement that was not a complete aban abandonment of specific racial and ethnic and indigenous groups, but a real desire to understand um, relation, the relations between them, both the incommensurabilities and the indeterminacies that that you know coalesce, um, and you know, and, and so I think that that was uh, really refreshing, and so that necessitated um, a critical examination of transnationalism, you know, uh, you know, global a global analysis, but in particular, you know, uh, intersectionality and. Um, and sort of the, and an engagement with you know gender and sexuality in particular. So, so that's those are some of the points um, that I, yeah, that I think about when I think about critical. I don't know if do you all have other things to add to the critical? <laughs> I think that you know at least for me is kind of thinking about this this uh, the ways in which we have to. Uh, be uh, aware and uh, aware of the history around institutionalization and how um, power can co-opt um, moves from below um, towards kind of in our vision for and our strategies for creating something anew. Institution, like it's the critique, but also our creativity in, in creating something that centers um, the possibilities of us to live in a more uh, peaceful, sustainable, um, equitable world. And I feel like power is very uh, adept at being able to um, co-opt and embrace certain strategies, but uh, and 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 the gap between celebrating it and the reality of what actually changes not mm -hmm. necessarily occurring. And I saw the the criticality of that is kind of thinking from below um, in every every form, you know, in our analysis coming from the experiences and the struggles of movement building. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like to me, I, I hear you in the sense of like critical has been thrown about. And that's something that as a collective is like, what does it mean that we're, we're utilizing this term, which is constantly, you know, is being used so much? Um, mm -hmm. How are we reproducing, you know, like a missing and understanding what that actually means? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Let me just tag in, tag oh. in on that, Mike. Yeah. I also think that 
it, as power is like adept, right? It's also not coherent. I think that there are, you know, and Mike, um, you know, brought this in like years ago, we were in this workshop and, you know, about history, not repeating, but rhyming and thinking about like um, Canadian and US, even Australia, what you were saying, Echo, in your research, like doing their anti-Asian exclusion sort of lockstep. I think in that, it all often, um, I, I, I often am curious about the incoherence in this, in how state violences are enacted asymmetric, asymmetrically, right? Because I think the critical part for us in, in, in the collective is like, um, what the power is below, from below, and also like centering that, right? Like where then as scholars, as activists, as parents, you know, how do we remind ourselves that the violence is not exceptional, but also that folks have been negotiating and that's like a tame word for it, right? Negotiating with that kind of power, like that violence. Um, and I think if we tell a critical story, we don't just tell the story of power. We have to also tell the stories, you know, where we're disrupting. I, I also feel like the, going back to the importance of collective in the sense that you know, it's embedded in our in our in our in our stories, mm -hmm. um, our experiences that helped us survive these institutions, is a collective. That unfortunately, when we're in higher ed, in uh, via of training our training through grad school, that has kind of separated us and kind of mystified and and, and made us to forget the importance of collective, in actually transforming these structures. Um, and so I feel like your work, you kind of posed it in the sense that from the very start of your sentence in that, in that monthly review piece is that COVID-19 is, is revealing and it's exposing some contradictions. Um, you said it in, this, in, in, your, in, in our dialogue that um, when I asked you about, you know, what's giving you some joy right now? And you're like, there are some questions that folks are asking right now that has been exposed by a particular moment that around racial capitalism around um, Asian, Asian Americans relations um, with settler colonialism, um, with the uh, ra racialization. I wanted to maybe offer you a, a way to, uh, to conclude in terms of thinking about what are the questions that you feel that maybe this new, this upcoming generation is interrogating that's bringing you hope, both in terms of analytically, but also politically in terms of, you know, the, the interrogation and interventions. Um, What's, what is it right now that's giving you hope that tomorrow is gonna to be better than yesterday? What is giving me hope? Uh, I think that, I mean, just going back to, you know, th thinking about critical and collective. I mean, um, I think that this, our students are extremely critical um, and they have very, I mean, I think that the, horizon of hope is 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 really limited it's become even more sort of limited um, recently but I do feel like that you know the um, belief the ideologies of basically neoliberal ideologies I mean have completely broken down during the pandemic you know um, we saw you know uh, uh, ventilators you know you know going to the highest bidder that kind of 
ridiculous, you know, uh, economies of scarcity. So we just were, I mean, it was, I, I mean, I saw Republican governors also just mouth the gape at just the way in which, um, you know, how capitalism actually works, which is it works on scarcity, it works on inequality and racism, as Ruthie Gilmore says, you know, racism enshrines all of that and, and legitimizes it. So I feel that there's so much more skepticism in the next generation that so there's that criticality but in terms of collectives i feel like there's probably less faith in just individualism i hope um and that if colonialism and racial capitalism are basically transform abundance into scarcity you know uh interdependence into isolation there's sort of a rejection of that what if we don't what if we reject that premise and instead embrace abundance interdependence you know mutual aid um but you know it's not simply enough to just you know turn to our neighbors and say that i you know i want to be in interdependent relation with you i mean it requires also at simultaneously um you know doing what people are doing right now is you know calling out particularly the carceral state which basically you could say borders you know prisons military bases all manage you know racialized surplus populations um in the world and in our country so um so we want to think about how we can start to dismantle um racial capitalism you know i think that the abolitionist movement is actually a, a very compelling place because it would require a whole new set of, of social relations, right? Um, from which to build societies based, or social relations based on, um, you know, again, abundance and interdependence rather than isolation and, and scarcity. Ago, I have um, so much appreciation for the work that you do um and um the ways in which you make are, you're making connections that are offering us ways of um not just critiquing but remembering the creativity in like um the ways in which relations need to be thought of anew um the connections that you made you know in terms of thinking about um um uh the con conservation movement and white supremacy i was just like blown away I, I appreciate your work. You are a site of hope for, for many folks uh, in terms of the analysis that you offer. Um, and it's super important and timely right now in terms of um, um, your centering of um, Asian American, Asian folks in terms of thinking about racialization. So much praise and gratitude for, for you and the work that you do. Um, Val, do you wanna close out or? Thank you, Aiko. I'll just close out with more gratitude. Thank you, Aiko. Class was in session today. In thank session. you so much. Well, and you thank have you given both. me like pointers for the workshop and the town hall that I'm gonna speak. I just took all the notes. So thank you so much, Aiko. Thank you. Yes. Uh, well, thank you both for this great podcast that you're starting. We need more Asian American voices. I listen to, I try to listen to them all. So, um, but thank you both. Um, it was really wonderful to talk with you and sort of try to digest some of the things that we've been, you know, encountering and trying to understand. Awesome. I'm going to stop the recording. Okay.